Well, how did your Thanksgiving gathering go? Tracy and I and the two young men children, we used to call our boys, went with us to see my mother in Greensboro, North Carolina, who now lives on our ancestral farm. When I was growing up, and certainly pre-COVID, we used to have these huge family get-togethers there on the farm. My mom was one of eight, and I am the oldest of 15 grandchildren. Now there are great-grandchildren, so it's quite a mob. So despite the fact that my cousins, many of whom have now moved to other parts of the country, many of those great-grandchildren are not there for the gatherings, this was a, still a huge deal. It's a big event. It's the same with Tracy's family as well when we gather with them. And then what hit us, right? COVID. And yeah, so there's been some disruption But I'm hoping that eventually this tradition of big family get-togethers is going to be a thing again in the future. And that'll be great. But, you know, sometimes family can be a handful. Within big families, and certainly even small ones, there can be a wide variety of opinions. Thoughts about life and the world. And, of course, these wide opinions can stretch into things like politics and faith. You all know what I mean. Most of us live in a pretty contained and consistent world in terms of what we believe and how we live out our lives. Certainly, if we're part of a church and we live out what we believe in practical ways, the way that we talk, uh, the way that we make decisions... Well, that can mark us out as different sometimes from many of the folks around us. But at least within our own nuclear families, there's at least some comfort that everyone there, in most ways, is pretty much on the same page in terms of an overall worldview and belief system. At least that's what we think. But then we get together with family again, and we are reminded that Well, through the door comes Uncle Attila the Hun. And right behind him is Cousin Carly Marx. Looking for some of Memo's green beans and potato salad. You know all who I'm talking about, right? Do you have an Uncle Attila or a Cousin Carly Marx in your family? Or maybe in your workplace, the place where you go to school. It goes down something like this. You're minding your own business. And then from across the room, you hear Uncle Attila sharing his wisdom over a piece of pecan pie concerning his solution to the problems in the Middle East. And his solution sounds something like this. Kill them all and let God sort them out. And he thinks he's a great theologian because he got God in there. And in your mind, you're thinking that somewhere in the Bible, I know somewhere Jesus said something about loving your neighbor as yourself. And and then you think back to a Sunday school lesson where we covered Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And 
this pops into your head and, and you're thinking about what Jesus taught and you begin to think, really? And then across to him, the room, you hear little Miss Carly Marks, who's just finished her first semester away at college. And now she knows that everything her parents think is just, well, lame And she starts going on an extended tirade between sending texts on her phone that her mom and daddy paid to give her about how she is the victim of privilege. And you remember what you heard in church a few weekends ago about what women and girls in Afghanistan are going through and other places around the world. And you think that maybe just a little perspective combined with a bit of the gospel might be called for in such a situation. Any of this in your family? Or how about a how about a coworker who who meditates using crystals? Or who's an agnostic? The truth of the matter is we live in an increasingly polarized country of extremes about all kinds of things. Politics, faith, whatever. And people can be passionate about this stuff. It used to be that you could just quote the Bible at them. And that might settle it. But the truth of the matter is there's so much cultural static now in our world today that it can be hard to hear what the Bible says. And this approach does not consider whether the person to whom you are talking even considers the Bible to be authoritative for their life. The truth of the matter is fewer and fewer people still do. The quote the Bible at them tactic also fails to meet people where they are. Because it fails to take seriously the questions they are asking and the tensions in which they are living. Well, so what do you say? How do you and I interact with those whose ideas are so different from ours? How do we participate, excuse me, in difficult situations? And for those of us who consider Scripture to be authoritative for how we believe and live, what does the Bible actually have to say about engaging with those who do not share our faith? I mean, how do we as followers of Jesus have conversations with those who differ from us? Well, maybe, just maybe, By turning to God's word, we might be able to pick up a few ideas before we see Uncle Attila and Cousin Carly Marks in a few weeks again over Christmas, which is better known in the family as Round Two. To do that this morning, I want us to look together at a portion of the Apostle Paul's second letter to his disciple Timothy, who had been sent by Paul to the church at Ephesus As a troubleshooter. You see, Paul and Timothy lived in a world of polarized extremes also. The early church there in Ephesus was indeed almost racked, well, 
put it like this. All of the early churches in the world at that point were pretty much racked with a number of things. Conflicting personalities, controversies. And if you read Paul's letters very closely, you'll see some of these controversies being mentioned. We're going to be looking specifically at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 22 through 26, starting on page 1854 in the Bibles that are in the pews with you there, if you didn't bring your own Bible. As you turn to that page, I'm going to ask that you would allow me just to give us a little background to what we're going to be reading. So you see, the church in Ephesus was, as we say in the South, a hot mess. In fact, the first century early church in general was afloat in a sea of cults, in philosophical movements that were at odds with this new way that Jesus had taught his followers. And if that were not enough, the congregation itself was racked internally with all kinds of weird ideas. Asceticism, which is essentially a denial of the body. Greed, pride, and even a misunderstanding of Jesus' return. And into all these intricate problems and these hostile personalities with different points of view, Paul chose as his apostolic emissary, his close companion, Timothy. Timothy apparently had some experience under his belt and Paul trusted him. But Timothy was also younger, maybe with not quite as much spiritual maturity as Paul. And he certainly did not possess the clout that Paul enjoyed among all the churches. So Paul gives him a series of instructions about how to deal with the hotheads and the controversies that he knows he's going to face. In verses 14 through 19 in chapter 2, right above what we're going to read, Paul gives advice for how to deal with some of the destructive teaching that's going around in the congregation. Then in verses 20 through 21, he uses an illustration from common life. It's found in households to show how Christians are called to relate to one another. And then beginning in verse 22, he offers young Timothy some instruction for how to handle controversy. So let's pick up there in our reading. Verse 22, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says to his young disciple Timothy, Flee from the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. May the Lord God bless to us this reading of a portion of his word. Now, it's interesting how Paul begins his advice to this young pastor, Timothy. Rather than starting out by telling him what to do, he speaks first about Timothy's character because he wants to remind Timothy of who he is before instructing him on the specific approach he is about to take. So here in verse 22, 
Again, Paul counsels Timothy in this way. He says, flee the evil desires of youth and to pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Paul is telling or reminding Timothy to embody some of the spiritual attributes that he mentions in some of his other letters. Like Ephesians chapter 6, where he, he talks about we as followers of Jesus putting on the full armor of God in order to do battle and defeat not people, but powers and principalities of evil. And then there's the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. You all know that. Among those fruits is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, generosity, and self-control. You see, for Timothy and for us, our first witness to what we believe is our own character. It's a changed life brought on by the Holy Spirit's presence in us. Anything we communicate has to be delivered in a spirit of grace and hope. Because at the end of the day, that's who we are. We're people of hope. And it's what we share We don't need to feel embarrassed or threatened or angry or resentful. We can be gentle and respectable because we know that God stands with us. Friends, tone really matters because it communicates our love for those with whom we engage, whether it's family or friends or whomever. And I know this can be hard. Sometimes you just want to reach out and love them. But remember, it's only by grace that we ourselves stand in the hope that we have. Okay, so we start with a Holy Spirit infused character as a follower of Jesus. That's who we are. Now, what we, what do we do when we engage someone with whom we disagree? Well, Paul continues in verse 23 and the first half of verse 24, and he starts like this. He tells us what not to do. Paul advises Timothy not to have anything to do with foolish or stupid arguments because you know that they produce quarrels and the Lord's servant must not quarrel. In other words, when you're in a conversation with someone who disagrees with you, maybe even seriously, don't be drawn down into fight mode. Stay away from ad hominem attacks by using some of the language that you and I hear on the media these days. You all know the kind of words I'm talking about. Bozo Biden. Orange man this, orange man that, right? Seems like everyone does it. Friends, let me just say very simply that as followers of Jesus, we have a higher calling than that. Not to say that we cannot oppose things vigorously, but it's so important how we do so. In this case and in every other, we should not be taking our cues from the world here. One young man once told me, I wish the two opposing political sides would spend less of their time talking about what's wrong with the other side and double their efforts in communicating positive solutions to the issues that we face in our world. And he said that political party 
will get my vote. Oh, and by the way, you do know that these media commentators use that kind of language intentionally, right? Why do they do this? To get us riled up. Why? So that we will watch their show again. Or buy their books. Friends, don't fall for it. When you're engaging with someone who disagrees with you, do not sling back mud. It will destroy your witness. Now, what to do? In the second half of verse 24, he tells Timothy to engage with a different kind of disposition. He calls him to be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. And then in the first half of verse 25, he adds, those who oppose him, he must gently instruct. Paul wants Timothy to reflect a spirit of goodwill, kindness, sympathy, gentleness, and patience towards those with whom he disagrees. He makes it clear that inevitably there will be some degree of conflict whenever there's disagreement. That's okay. But it's okay as long as that conflict remains healthy and productive. But whenever you and I become angry, no one will get anywhere. Because when a person gets angry, we pretty much lose our ability to listen to anything or anyone else. And so that goes for both us and the folks with whom we're talking. Now, again, keeping our cool can be kind of hard sometimes, right? I mean, when you hear something that we feel it's patently silly or misinformed, you just want to shake them. So here's the thing. And I have to be honest with you, it usually takes some deep prayer and consideration for this. But calm down, take a breath, and remember who you are and whose you are. Our calling as a follower of Jesus is not to defeat anyone in an argument, but to be an agent of God's reconciliation in the world. More on that later. But for now, let's get to the heart of it. In the first half of verse 25, Paul says, those who oppose him, he must gently instruct. So the question is, how? How do we do that? How do you and I, as followers of Jesus, gently instruct another person who may have very different ideas than we do? Where here's where you might want to think about taking some notes in your worship sheet, because I really want to spend some time breaking down Paul's practical advice here. And in order to do that, I need to take us back to Paul's own model. And that, of course, would be Jesus. I think all of us would agree that Jesus was a master at engaging with those with whom he disagreed. Think about all the interactions that he had with different kinds of people in the Gospels. And many, if not in all these interactions, do you remember what Jesus did? He asked questions. So, for example, when some of the spies from the teachers of the law came to quiz him about whether it was right to pay taxes, he asked whose portrait and inscription is on this denarius. On another occasion, when they were trying to trick him, he asked, which is easier for this paralyzed man, 
to say that your friends are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. At other times, when he wasn't necessarily in a verbal fight, he used questions to gently instruct those around him. For example, to Peter, he gave this question, who do you say that I am? And to Mary at the empty tomb, he asked, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you were looking for? Jesus, of course, is also our model for engaging with folks who may have different ideas than us. And using questions like Jesus did has several advantages. First, questions are an invitation to a thoughtful dialogue. Our questions should be intended, not be intended to embarrass anyone, but to challenge them to give some more thought to what he or she has said. Secondly, questions will also keep you and I from jumping to conclusions and thus mischaracterizing what our friends and family might be saying. Our goal is always to understand them, not to distort their view. So don't counter with what you believe or even disagree with what they say. Instead, ask a question or even better, several questions. So let me give you some examples of this, but let me say that every example that I'm about to share with you is some form of this very simple question. What do you mean by that? So to Uncle Attila, who wants to kill them all and let God sort them out, you could ask, what does that mean to you? Would that include women and children? Oh, to Cousin Carly Marks, you could ask, I wonder if women in Afghanistan and many other parts of the world would consider America an oppressive society. What do you think? To the girl at the restaurant who has a a tattoo on her forearm with a satanic emblem, you could simply ask her, hey, what does that mean? Is there any religious significance to that? And to the person who says they're not sure there is a God because of all the evil in the world, you could just simply ask, what do you mean by evil? What makes things evil or good? How did you develop this idea that some things are evil? You get the idea? The thought is by using some form of the question, what do you mean by that? You can open up a conversation to further dialogue without putting any real pressure on you. The key here is to deliver your questions in a mild, genuinely inquisitive manner that reflects Paul's early advice in verses 22 through 24 to be kind and gentle and not antagonistic or quarrelsome. So that's the first part of gently instructing someone, asking some form of the question, what do you mean by that? The second part of gently instructing someone who disagrees with us is asking another type of question. If the first question is the what question, what do you mean by that? The second question is the why question. Why do you believe that? Or I'm curious, why does that seem compelling to you? Or how did you come to this conclusion? 
If some of this sounds familiar to a number of you, this line of questioning, it can also be applied to a simple discipleship tool we use here called the learning circle based on Mark 115. The first question helps us understand what a person has experienced or is thinking. And the second question helps us understand why another person thinks the way that he or she does and why it is so important to them. The idea here is to reverse the burden of proof when the other person is making a claim. You see, you and I have to reject the impulse to counter every assertion someone might pull out of thin air, thus creating a quarrel. The idea instead is to guide the conversation to put the burden of proof back on the person. Again, it's not our call to defeat or embarrass anyone or their claim, but to ask them to explain it reasonably. So when they offer their explanation to your first question, what do you mean by that? Your second question is, why do you say that? As they respond to your second question, there's something that I want you to keep in mind, and it is this. Is what they are saying possible? Yes. Or is it really plausible given the evidence they Provide. Is it possible or is it plausible? I did mention it was time to take notes, right? Okay. In other words, when they state why they believe something, is it something merely based in a strong opinion? Or do they have real reasons to support their idea? And when they give their whys, here's the rule. When it comes to the big things in life, go with common sense. Odds on favorite. Not the long shot or the conspiracy theory, especially when so much is writing on things. The bottom line is this. Opinions are not proof. So, for example, when Uncle Attila says, once again, kill them all and let God sort it out, you could ask, why do you think that's such a good idea? And then, number one, hear him, give his own reasons. Maybe he'll have a chance to hear himself speak. Maybe he'll ignore that. And then number two, you can begin to analyze whether this is just his own opinion or whether he has some reasonable facts to back up what he says. And when your niece, the newly minted college student, Miss Carly Marks, starts complaining about the oppression she sees all around her, you might ask, I'm curious. Why does this idea seem so compelling to you since so many people around the world are not even allowed by their governments to ask such a question? When you hear her answer, yourself might actually learn something. Or you might get the sense that she's only reading that off a vacuous slogan off a bumper sticker somewhere. And she really hasn't thought it through. The third part. The third and final part of gently instructing someone who, again, may believe things very differently than you. Guess what? Once again, the task, the goal, is to ask a question. But this time, the purpose of the question is is to persuade them. But there's a challenge here. And the challenge is this. You and I, ourselves, have to know what we actually believe. If you happen to believe that indiscriminate killing is not the answer to anything contra Uncle Attila, the right-wing pillager, then you're going to have to know why. 
say, because you believe that every human life is created in the image of God. So the question to him might be, I'm a Christian. I wonder how your solution honors the image of God in those he has created. And then let Uncle Attila answer that. And to Cousin Carly, the budding Marxist socialist, you maybe could say, I've looked at other countries around the world, and I know that vastly different democratic countries like India and the UK and Israel, they have all reversed their trends towards socialism. Really, only oppressive countries like China, Cuba, and Venezuela have more and moved more and more towards uh, greater degrees of socialism. I wonder how moving to a less free society will solve the issues surrounding class privilege. In each case, I am gently giving Uncle Attila and Cousin Carly an alternative perspective for how to look at the issue. Notice when I responded to them or I asked them the question, I never said you, as in you ought to believe or you should think. You is accusatory, like you always and you never. And it tends to emotionally lock down a conversation whenever we use that second person pronoun. When we say, I wonder... I wonder, it allows us to set a boundary around what we think while also softening the edges of our challenge, suggesting that there is an alternative way of thinking of things. Now, as you can imagine, there are many other things that we could say about how to apply the Apostle Paul's call to gently instruct those who may have different ideas than ours. There are a number of really good books on this uh, topic, by the way. One is... um, a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, Daryl Bach. He's got a book called Cultural Intelligence, Living for God in a Diverse Pluralistic World. Another writer named Greg Kokel, K-O-U-K-L. He's got a book called Tactics, A Game Plan for Discussing Your Christian Convictions. Many of the ideas that I've shared with you this morning come from these two very short and readable books. These authors certainly do a better job than me in preparing us to participate in difficult conversations. But maybe the most incredible aspect of Paul's words of advice to Timothy come in the second half of verse 25 and then verse 26, where Paul finishes up this section by telling Timothy why he should engage those who disagree with him. He says, it's in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to his will. There are several things that we can say about this. First, a person's response is tied to something God does, not what we do. A person's response is God's responsibility and theirs, not ours. You and I are not responsible For another person's heart. Full repentance requires an eye-opening, Holy Spirit work of God. Yes, maybe from time to time, God might use us as agents to prompt a chaos moment in their lives. But ultimately, it's not our job to convert anyone. It's His. Think of your job as just putting a little stone a little stone in their shoe that they will have to at some point deal with 
themselves. Secondly, again, tone is so important. Combativeness and self-righteousness will not get us anywhere, friends. Our calling is not to defeat, humiliate, or embarrass people, but to challenge and invite them to be reconciled to God in all things. And you know, that's the beauty of this time of year called Advent. When we're reminded of the prophet's hope that God's light would shine in the darkness and a reconciler would come to bring, as the hymn says, peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinner reconciled. Friends, that's not human ingenuity or utopia. That's the gospel. And in another place, Paul says that you and I have been given this ministry of reconciliation. The question for us is, how are you and I going to engage in this ministry to which all of us have been called during this holiday season? More on that in just a moment. But thirdly, the last verse. Paul's reference to escaping the trap of the devil echoes back to the spiritual warfare that we mentioned earlier in Ephesians chapter 6. The truth of the matter is that a person can be in the clutch of spiritual forces completely unaware. Forces that keep them from forming their identity around anything other than Jesus. Forces that keep them locked into an emotional state of reactivity. So what this means for us is that you and I are going to have to be skilled at balancing both invitation and acceptance with challenge and hope. A few weeks ago, I had occasion to have a conversation with someone who was not a member of our church. But years ago, had been a part of an Alpha course here. The Alpha series is a great introduction to the Christian faith. And even during the course, it was clear that this person was struggling with some of the basics of the Christian faith. And that came out in some tense conversations we had from time to time. There are many reasons to believe why this person and I should not be friends now. But during our warm and long conversation a few weeks ago, at some point along the way, this person turned in the conversation and they said this, you know, you always listen to me. Not everybody did. I'll never forget that. Invitation and challenge. Acceptance and hope. Folks, there is every reason to believe that in a post-Christian Western context like our own, that is so polarized and filled with strongly held ideas about all kinds of things, that it will sometimes be hard for us as followers of Jesus to have good and fruitful conversations with those who differ from us. But that doesn't always have to be the case. By using the wisdom of the word like that found in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we can engage with those we know and love with the hope that is within us. And we can fulfill God's call for us to be wise in the way that we act towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity, letting our conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that we may know how to answer everyone. Friends, by doing this, we will invite them to be a part of God's story as we are to reconcile the world 
to himself. 